When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. We have to start off with the strategic position of the city between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Um, And that goes back to, as it was called, Byzantium. Um, We didn't actually use the name Byzantium to refer to the Eastern Roman Empire until quite recently, I think, it's the 19th century. Still, Byzantium is there in a... It's got a safe harbour, the Golden Horn. The straits are easy to stop if you want to do it. And so it gets chosen as an important city. I'm not quite sure why Constantine gave up the Western Empire... Rome was obviously in a bad way when he did so. I suppose a lot of it was falling down. It had been around for a very long time. Anyway, he uprooted, took Constantinople as his capital, and it became a great city. These fabulous walls that uh, defied everybody until 1453. The walls are still there. There are criticisms of the restoration, but at least they're there. They defied uh, all comers until, as I say, 1453, and the empire of Byzantium was, for much of the time, not all of it, a very grand thing, and the successor of Rome, and orthodoxy is its the centre of the orthodox world. Now, I might start off by saying something about that. The Russians, when the time came, said... We are the inheritors of Byzantium. And you'll remember there was a moment in Russian history in about 1510 when some monk, Philote, said, O thou, O grand Tsar, thou magnificence, thou glory of glories, thou refulgence of God, etc. Um, you are uh, the representative of the third Rome, and a fourth Rome there won't be. Now, what is the third Rome, Moscow, in 1510? Forests, tundra. The noise that you hear when you go into the countryside is roughly, wolves. Everybody's illiterate. Agriculture consists of going up to a forest, burning it down, throwing your greens into the, into the ashes, and then, and then burning down another forest. Third Rome, my eye. Um, Now, what had happened was that uh, the Tsar married. 
the niece of the last emperor of Byzantium, Sophia Paleologa. Now, she had been brought up at the court of the Pope as a Catholic, and she was sent to convert this barbarian ruler to Catholicism, instead of which he converted her to Orthodoxy. The next thing is they take over the double-headed eagle of Byzantium, of, uh, of, of Eastern Rome, and adopt it as the Russian crest, claiming the inheritance of Rome. No, that's not how it happened. The double-headed eagle, I found, I'd always assumed it was the eagle of Rome, split in two when they split the empire east and west. It's not. It's an old thing. It's Hittite, marked 2000 BC. And uh, the Seljuks picked it up, and then some monks picked it up from the Seljuks, and the Austrian emperor picked it up from the monks in 1430 and said, we are the Holy Roman Empire. And the Russians pricked their ears up and said, these people want to be an empire. No, we are. So they copied the double-headed eagle from the Austrians. Um, And the business of the Russian claim to Byzantium is, you know, I'll try to be polite, but it's fraud um, all the way along. Uh, And the Russians know it. When they, uh, when when the Serbians rebelled in the 1870s and appealed for volunteers in the name of Holy Russia and the Orthodox banners, 40 people went turned up who were generally bad hats. And if you'll remember Vronsky and Anna Karenina with toothache. So we can dispose of any idea of Russia as the natural inheritor of the Orthodox world. But it's there. It's a dimension. Now, why did Byzantium collapse? as it did in 1453. And again, we run into hard luck stories. The, uh, you know, the, um, the poor old Greeks, whose empire, after all, it was, will say that the, you know, the Turks arrived and committed rapine all over the place, end of Byzantium. Now, uh, for, um, for about 500 years, there's a kind of Byzantine uh, underworld, now, again, it's, it's, it's terribly difficult dealing with this kind of you know, nationalist nonsense because the truth is that Constantinople was ended, not by the Greeks, but by, uh, not by the Turks, but by the Italians. They, uh, and, um, it's a complicated story, but Venice, using Norman mercenaries, got involved in the middle period of the Crusades. And, you know, the, the Crusades, the initial crusading impetus. Let's protect the Ju- Jerusalem from the, from the infidel. That had sort of run out, and you know, on, the, on the open frontier, people really get along tolerably well. It's very difficult to arouse any kind of crusading spirit. And the, emperor, the, the Byzantine <coughs> emperor owed money to the Venetians. And there was a Byzantine pretender whom the Venetians wanted to put on the throne. So they got over the walls of Byzantium and ransacked the place. They ransacked it. The, uh, all, the th- all the best bits of Constantinople were carted off, insofar as they survived at all, to Venice, to the Vatican, some of it to Paris. Constantinople was despoiled, and it never really recovered. The Latins set up their own man, Baldwin, in 
the Latin Kingdom. Eventually that collapsed, and the new power that entered the area is the Turks. They had come into Anatolia, didn't, there were not very many of them. Um, they're good soldiers, nomads, and they're a presence as mercenaries around. And they started making little alliances here and there with the Byzantines. And in the course of a surreal Byzantine civil war, the Turks were ferried over to fight for one faction by the Genoese. It's not true that the Turks who plod, plod, plod all the way from you know, conquering and so on. They're one among a number of elements, including Catalans at that time. It's terribly complicated. One thing is clear. The, the, Constantinople has its last great moment in about 1320, and there is one fabulous monastery which has survived. It's called the Karia Jami, the, the Kora. There, the frescoes, is, it's the last, in the style of Giotto, frankly. They must have been looking at some Italian things. They're absolutely wonderful. That has been preserved just by the walls. But after that, it's downhill. The economy is dominated by Venetians and Genoese who fight each other and manipulate this, this bit of Byzantium against that bit. There was quite a lot of intermarriage with the Turks at that stage, incidentally. It's, it's nonsense to think of, of some, you know, who was that idiot who wrote about clash of civilizations? It's nonsense to think of the civilizations as clashing. They, uh, and Constantinople begins to take its present shape. There is the imperial capital, Stumble, with the Hagia Sophia, the Pantocrator, and such churches as the Venetians and the Normans had left. Its population was declining, and the great buildings were all collapsing. Then, on the other side of the walls, there is um, Pera, a Greek word meaning over the river, over the sea, um, and Galata. And uh, Galata, there's a lot of people shake their heads and say, where does the name Galata come from? It's obvious, because it's the same word as Galatians, as in St. Paul. It's Gaul. It's a variant of Welsh. And what it is, is the Celts. Three Celtic tribes had wandered into Anatolia after Alexander. They were mercenaries for the, the local kings. And they... They eventually set up their own place with Ankara, funnily enough, as its capital. It seems to be obvious that Galata means Celt, because they were there. It's true the Celts don't leave much in the way of archaeology. I mean, it's, uh, it's a problem about Celts. It tends to leave broken bottles. But in, in, uh, <laughs> so we can't tell. But Galata was occupied by the Genoese, and they built in 1384, was it, a great tower much restored, which was built not against the Turks, not against the Byzantines, built against the Venetians, and that is the rivalry which ruins Byzantium. Constantinople, by the time you come on to 1420, is a city of 50,000 people. It's poor. They, it hasn't got much of an army and less of a navy. The emperor was reduced to wandering around Europe saying, please help, <clears throat> would turn up in Florence. And the Pope would say, 
you must convert to Catholicism, which the top class of Byzantines did, some of them settling in Italy. But the rest of the people didn't want to. They, they, they didn't feel like cooperating with the Catholics. Now, when uh, Constantine XI came along, he did something very silly. He refused to pay the tribute to the Turks, who were by now running the Balkans nearby Anatolia and had a big navy. And Mehmet Fatih, the conqueror of Constantinople, was then 21, anxious to make his name, uh, and thought, well, let's take over Byzantium. So it comes to the siege in 1453. A lot of books on modern Turkey begin with that siege because it's the obvious thing to do and there are some very good books on it. But it was an anticlimax. The city was a ruin when it was besieged. The, uh, the walls, which had resisted every other besieging army, were not going to be able to resist uh, the new artillery which came up. There's a wonderful book on the technicalities by Roger Crowley on this. Uh, once, you get, once you get bombards that can do with gunpowder and, and you, you attack those walls, they're not going to be able to resist. There were, defending the poor old walls, 9,000 poor deluded souls, including a contingent of Turks. Outside, there are 200,000 men, often recruited from Balkan Christians. And uh, it, a bit of a formality, is the siege of Constantinople. Mehmet Fatih comes in through the Golden Gate on his white horse. It's, it's, uh, it's commemorated every year. At the moment, the present government in Turkey likes to celebrate people like Mehmet Fatih as against the Kemal Ataturk, who was the re Republican. So they play up 1453. They might remember that the native language of Mehmet Fatih was Greek because he was three-quarters Balkan Christian by origin. He spoke Serb as well. Um, he comes in on his white horse. And uh, the first stop was to do a deal with the Orthodox Church. The, the great church had had to be closed for the whole of the siege because if the Latins and the Catholics and the Catholics and the Orthodox celebrated together. They, they fought, you know, as they were fighting the other day in the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Uh, so they just kept the, do the door locked until the last moment. Mehmet Fatih then arrived and said, where's the patriarch? And the, the patriarch was under arrest because <coughs> the emperors didn't want to know about him. Mehmet hauled him out, and the two men sat down and drew up uh, an agreement by which the big church, the Hagia Sophia, was turned into a mosque, and all the others were left alone. The Orthodox patriarch became the greatest landowner in the empire. He rode around Constantinople with the badges of a pasha, and all the privileges under the sun and that document was drawn up uh, in Greek and it addressed the patriarch in, the, um, in Greek as Megas Authentes, which was the way you addressed a Byzantine emperor, great prince, Megas Authentes. The Turkish ear 
is a blessed construct. It's a little bit like the Japanese. You know, there are certain things that they cannot quite get their syllable, get, get their throats round. They can now, but in those days they couldn't. And they would find something like calling itself Prokopi in Cappadocia. And they would turn that into Urgup. Um, I think they did the same thing with Constantinople. They, they heard Constantinople and they turned it into Istanbul. It's a, it's a deformation, but it's the sort of thing that happened at that time. They heard the tone, they heard the word authentes, and you know what they turned it into? Effendi. <laughs> and that, I think, more or less sets the, the tone for what, uh, for what followed. In the great century of the Ottoman Empire, that 16th, 16th century, the long 16th century, let's call it. In that great century, you can call it a Greek-Turkish synthesis. <coughs> the Orthodox flourished. The, there's a kind of a brilliant Romanian historian called Yorga wrote a book called Byzantium After Byzantium, which just about sums up that atmosphere. And it's the great century of the Ottoman Empire when everything seems to work like clockwork. It's not just the army running to the Balkans, taking over half Persia, getting into Ethiopia. It's not just the artillery being sent off to Indonesia. And things like hospitals, for instance, work very well. I get very interested in, in um, a curious phenomenon, the why the centre of Anatolia is denuded of trees. It's terribly bleak and eroded. They're getting over it now, but it's been a long story. Why is it uh, without trees? Because in the old days, the government was strong enough to say to peasants, no goats, and to stop it happening. Somewhere around the 1630, 1640, uh, maybe, the government of the Ottoman Empire Seems to, get, seems to lose its grip, whether it's inflation, one possibility, whether it's climate change, new varieties of malaria. Um, but whatever you think about it, it's round about 1650, you can tell in the city itself that the bottom is dropping out of the old formula, that it carries on, but it's becoming repetitive and tired and things are beginning not to work. <clears throat> I sometimes wonder, is it fair to argue that in the 1630s, 1640s, there's uh, Islam, and the same is, I'm afraid, true of Catholicism, becomes a kind of dead hand. It stops people from learning things, from doing new things. Uh, any time anybody you know, thinks of, if you think of you know, counter-Reformation Catholicism, think of the comparison, which I think works very well, of Turkey and Spain. In Spain, for instance, you were forbidden to bring in foreign books about anything, particularly Dutch. Now, the Dutch do very good ships. With the ban on Dutch shipping manuals, Spanish shipping ceased to advance. In fact, it made so little advance that when it came to the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, 
the, uh, there were 120 Spanish ships. 90 of them were sunk. Another 15 or so were sunk by the storm that followed. And the King of Spain devised a medal, which he struck and awarded to the captains of the ships which had not been sunk. And this is typical of this kind of dead hand of, of religious orthodoxy in the 1630s and 1640s. Now, I know I am treading on difficult territory. And I also know one other thing, my own knowledge of this, is to say that the very best second-hand. But it is a curious thing that the <clears throat> an empire which had been capable of all sorts of advances couldn't do it after about 1640. There was an interesting case, you know, in 1683 when the... Uh, there was an earthquake and the ulema said to the then sultan we're up the third um, this earthquake happened because you have got telescopes on the top of that tower trying to probe the secrets of God what they were simply trying to work out the stars for navigation purposes and the uh, ulema persuaded the sultan to throw the, throw the telescopes away and it's the end of Ottoman shipping, in effect. What had once been a great navy no longer is going to be a great navy. And then you come on to the 1630s, 1640s, when the, the sultans who had been pretty formidable characters suddenly get caught up in court intrigues. The sultan's mother becomes all important. There's the world of was it Dryden called it, where ladies interpose and slaves debate. This world, where, where corruption grows in the whole system, to the point where all sorts of things which ought to have worked just don't work anymore. And so you... Uh, things like, for instance, it's notorious that the harem causes giggles. Oh yes, the sultan, the harem. And the harem is a disastrous institution because it means... First of all, the, the, the sultan's surrounded by women who are either, either glowering or, or bullying or, or, or giggling away. He's got no peace of mind, in other words. His, uh, the sons get brought up in what's called the cage by some doting, neglected mother pouring chocolate puddings into the thing. So you, and we all know what happens from that sort of background, and a certain amount of the dynasty develops into the, what might be described as the hereditary anal passive that starts developing. And it's a disastrous system of running an empire. And it wasn't changed significantly um, until the atmosphere becomes quite different at the beginning of the 19th century. I'm always, I mean, the top capital palace in the great days, before it got taken over by the harem and all that, is a spectacular and splendid place. After that, there's a terrible, sad atmosphere to it. I, I've got my doubts any time I go into it, because I'm reminded of what went on in the late phase of, um, of, the, of, the, of, the, um, of, the, of the palace. Now, the 18th century is, uh, well, the early 18th century is all right. There's an element of internal, external peace. 
they can extract money from somewhere. So there's some pretty buildings from that period. They're pretty rather than, rather than interesting. Bits of the city develop. Florence Nightingale, Scudari, Uskudar, for instance, does quite well. Uh, but then they are overshadowed by the power on, on which is the real menace, and it's Russia. Uh, the, Tur- the Russians, for some reason, can manage what the Turks can't. They can strategically plan with Catherine the Great how they're going to take over what had been the Turks' lake, the Black Sea. It was a very important thing. They get The Turks had control of the trade that came down from Central Europe through the Danube into the Black Sea. A lot of money there. The Crimea was an ally. They dominated the Caucasus, and uh, when the Russians come in and take away all that, a lot of the Ottomans' money goes, and you can see that by the end of the 18th century, the, the empire is becoming quite poor. There are not many buildings that go up at that time. They're very badly planned. There's another curious thing about Constantinople at this time. Um, what, what the, the twin dangers in the Mediterranean are fires and plague. You've got to be able to control those. And in the great days, they could. Now, the, the curious thing about the Sharia law is that where it affects property, it gives the right not to the owner of the property, but to the occupant. See, there is that side to Islam, as to Catholicism, which will take pity on some you know, poor old granny living in a single room somewhere. She'll have her rights, and under Islam that sort of thing is allowed. But the result of all that is that the height of buildings is not controlled, nor is the stuff they're made out of. You can have a very narrow street ending in an impasse, and there's no town planning at all. Nothing like the big squares that distinguish, well, Trafalgar Square or let alone the big places in Vienna, which are ruled by another system of law altogether. And Istanbul consisted of narrow little streets made of wood, and it gets cold at night in the winter, and any kind of stove going off, you have have the whole place burning down. Plague is another big problem, also in narrow streets, and also not particularly controlled. So Istanbul, by the time you reach 1800, is, uh, is, is a city which is running down very badly indeed. And European commentators would go and say, what is the future of this place? What is the future of this empire? And <clears throat> they, uh, there is one thing about the Turks, that they always fight back. You can never write them off. It's always a mistake to do that. And when the Russians and the British and the French thought they could write off the Turks, suddenly they come bouncing back. And you find a period when they start saying in 1838, let's have free trade, 39, let's change the whole system and we'll become a modern European country. All sorts of things go wrong with it, but you have a period, the Tanzimat, when a modern Ottoman Empire capital emerges. And you can see the vestiges of it, in, well, more than vestiges, 
in old Istanbul at the, the Persian embassy roundabout. My favourite building in the whole city is what might be described as the first quango. All of this cost a huge amount of money. The Turks were ripped off by bankers who didn't know when to stop. So they went bankrupt in 1876, and their public finances were taken over by something which was called the Kestela Debt Ottoman. Now, interesting enough, you know, the, the Greek public finance in the same period was also taken over by, by I don't know what it called itself, the, the um, treasure of the Greek debt or something. Uh, and foreigners took over, and they built themselves a fabulous building, which is now the Istanbul Boys' School, on the, it's lit up at night, put up by an Italian, French ambassador, uh, architect. Uh, and there are these, out of that period, there are very good things. The outstanding piece in Istanbul, which developed at that point, is the European town, Galata. There, they moved in, for the most part, French-Italian architects. But the Turks were also learning. And when you look at some of these buildings, there <clears throat> on the Galata side, <clears throat> if you go up by tram and just simply put your look upwards, they're very, very good, some of the detailing very nicely worked out, all that. That area uh, is, uh, was occupied largely by Christians and Jews. Uh, in 1956, there came what I think is the worst mistake in the history of Tur- modern Turkey, when a riot chased those Christians out. It was a it was an awful thing to do. It was witnessed by Randolph Churchill. All the best shops, half the stock exchange, the people who knew how to do things tended to be Greeks or Armenians, and it was absurd to chase them out. The area was then squatted by uh, gypsies, Kurds, people from anywhere. Um, I've got a flat in that area, and, and you can sometimes be kept awake by gypsy weddings, which go on for three days. Um, And then, about 20 years ago, the process of gentrification happened. And it's it's now going hand over fist. It's quite interesting to see see how it's being done, but Istanbul is very much recovering. Now, I'm I'm galloping over an enormous period. It comes, in the end, to that disastrous point when uh, pretty well everybody just wrote off the Turks. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation 
of George Orwell's classic. 1984 was pretty cool. And I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Gladstone had, had, um, had denounced them. Now, Gladstone was a dreadful old humbug. He knew that this area, southeastern Europe, was very tricky. He had been governor of the Ionian Islands and used to go over to Albania and talk to the, the Turks there. He knew that it was all complicated. Uh, and as, it expa- as, it, as the whole thing exploded, he led off denouncing the Turks, saying they should get out of the Balkans, um, bag and baggage, all that, uh, knowing probably that uh, they would indeed get out along with something like 7 million refugees in conditions of, uh, from the Caucasus and the Balkans. But by 1890, Salisbury, also writing off Turkey, they'll never be able to turn the corner. And they're beginning to think, right, through the Greeks, the Armenians, uh, we will be able to take over the Ottoman Empire. And the Germans were protecting it. And it comes to that those awful Balkan Wars when hundreds of thousands of refugees were driven out, Salonika, a Turkish Jewish city, ethnically cleansed in the end, um, not at once, uh, the tragedy of Smyrna, all that, uh, in, in, this, in, is in this period. The Turks were protected by the Germans, And they said in the end, if we don't go to war, we will become a sort of football for the powers to carve up when they make a compromise peace. So it comes to 1918, the general collapse and the invasion of Anatolia. And Istanbul by that stage had become 
Oh, it's, uh, it, it, um, it became pretty much of a, I won't call it a ruin, but it was in, in very, very bad shape. Then comes the Turkish nationalist resistance from Ankara, which uh, led by uh, the Turkish nationalists said, the Balkan nations have set up nation states, we'll do it too. I don't see what else they could have done. It's, of course, an artificial process. Now, Istanbul is Ottoman, and the Ottoman language is an incredibly elegant, sophisticated thing. Uh, with, I mean, I, I, I know, because I, I read modern Turkish, I come across some of the, um, some of the, uh, the Ottoman words, and they are uh, uh, quite extraordinary. Degrees of envy, for instance, dependent on the, dependent on the amount of malice involved. Um, my, my favourite, if I, if I can say so, is a, a book I found in the, the Red House, which is Muyalim. And that is described as a, a condition of looseness of the bowels that is just about controllable. <laughs> <laughs> it's, written in, it's written in a script, which is basically Arabic. And the grammar is Turkish, um, Arabic has got three vowels and four varieties of Z, depending on how much D there is in it. Um, Turkish has got eight vowels, and a Turkish sentence in the old script could mean 12 things. You really had to know the context to work it out. So not surprisingly, there are very few people who are literate. And since the peasants speak varieties of Turkish... Uh, and not very sophisticated, there's no hope at all that they will read. They can recite epic verse and so on, but that's that. Now, how are you going to make uh, a nation out of this? And the young Turks already before 1914 had said, change the script for a start. You must do that. And that was done by Ataturk in 1928. Then they apply themselves to, to, to purifying the language. And this is this, again, is a sad business because an awful lot of the very good old words um, people don't, simply don't know, and there are some very elegant old words. I, I'm quite friendly with Enver Pasha's granddaughter, a splendid woman, and I keep teasing her about the words she doesn't know. I said, how do you say participation in Turkish? She said, kapke. I said, no, no, that's modern Turkish. What's the old one? And she had to ring up her great-aunt until we found ishtirak. That's contribution and uh, participation. When they had to invent a word for communist, they said ishtirakche. As, um, that's their word for communist. It didn't last long. Uh, so they're, they're having to... All of these things are being done. And Ataturk said, let's get away from Istanbul. It's corrupt. It's too hot. In, uh, it's, uh, it's got all these awful non-Turks in it. And Ankara was a provincial capital, very provincial, not prepared to be the capital at all. The station buffet was the, was the French embassy for quite a long time. If you went to have dinner with the president, you went up through, you picked your way through snowdrifts and in your white tie, and then... As you left, you had to be careful that you were not going to be eaten by a wolf. And that was Ankara, and the, the Istanbuliots hated it and still hate it. 
they don't, they don't understand why I am, am actually much happier to live in Ankara. And I always just tease them. I say, look, you know, you have to understand about me that when I get up in the morning, I look at my face in the mirror and I realize tearfully that I am a Scot and I think about the ills of my nation and I feel entirely at home in an enlightenment that failed. (laughs) (laughs) um, Ankara has been a success. Schools, hospitals, all that. I think we can say that modern Turkey, give or take criticisms of this and that, it's also been pretty much of a success story. You know, compare it with Russia. Russia in 1922, far ahead. Russia now, the men die at 60, Turkey 70, uh, the GDP per head, insofar as anybody believes these figures, um, easily, easily comparable. We had a Russian immigration of 2 million in Turkey until not so long ago. It's come up. It's doing not badly at all. And the trouble with this kind of thing is that as it comes up, the Turks will now look at the Ottoman Empire. Uh, up to about a generation ago, they'd have said, we're doing jolly well because we're sort of, we're sort of more or less Europeans and Western, and that's the good thing about Turkey. But as they come up, and partly because of the problems with Europe, they look at the Ottoman past and they say, hmm, there we did good. All sorts of good things about the Ottoman past. They look at Istanbul. Uh, they crowd into the mosques and the top capital palace. Um, and they wonder about, what about the, the old script, all that old literature that we cannot read? And it's making a bit of a comeback. And I think with the present government, which is obviously more in sympathy with this than previous governments would have been, the, um, there's a tendency to think, well, let's get away from Ankara. Ankara, which is secular, uh, it, 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 which is the heart of the old of the Turkish Republic, whatever its achievements, let's go back and let's have the capital in Istanbul again, and then it will be the head of a, a new sort of caliphate, which will have resonance all over the Arab world, right into Central Asia. In other words, they're coming back with the dream of the Ottomans. Quite frankly, I mean, looking at it purely practically, if you want to kill, kill a city, call it the capital. They're much, much better off if they combine, confine government to its own reservation, where it can make its own noises. And the, you know, the, Ankara is now a sort of mixture of Canberra and Bangladesh, but it's still much better to keep a capital in a place like that and not ruin Istanbul, because the biggest problem now is its traffic, with which I'll stop. Thanks. Thanks, Georgiana Vaughan. Just building on what you were saying about European involvement in Turkey and also about this move to make Istanbul a new caliphate, I think you said, with influence all over the Arab world, a lot of the literature after the Arab Spring was saying that Turkey missed a trick to sort of take the lead and, and to gain influence in the Arab world. And if you look at a sort of traditional balance of power theory, you could make the case that Turkey should be looking at the Middle East rather than at Europe. 
I completely agree with you that why would Turkey perhaps now want to be involved in Europe with the euro? So do you think that Turkey in the future is looking towards Europe or do you think it's looking towards the Middle East? I, I think yes. There's, <coughs> there's certainly a, <coughs> a gravitational pull, if you like, towards the Middle East. But, but and there's a huge amount of economic uh, interest in the place. Turkish, Turkish construction companies all, all over that part of the world. And it's not surprising that they would say well, it's, uh, it's part of our backyard. We can, we can move in and show them things. And why not? It's uh, not wrong. Still, they, you know, if you, um, even in southeast Turkey, it's so much closer to Europe than it is to the Middle East. I've, I've been in Hatay, you know, on, the, on the Syrian border, and it's, it's a difference of two worlds, that, still. And then, for better or worse, they are with Europe. They are, in effect, part of the whole European thing, I would have said. I mean, I regard the whole business of neo-Ottomanism, dreaming of, uh, dreaming of um, you know, the solidarity of the, of the Turkic Muslim peoples and all the rest of it. You know, Enver Pasha tried that in 1920. He, he arrived in uh, Bolshevik Russia after the collapse of the empire. And the Bolsheviks took him up. Um, and the poor man had some kind of affair, I think, with Clara Zetkin, of, of all people. And uh, then they packed him off to uh, Baku, where he, commander-in-chief of the Ottoman army, nephew of the sultan, appeared at a thing called the Congress of the Toilers of the East in Baku. And his role was to represent, sorry, the proletariat of Libya... <laughs> After that, he got a bit disillusioned with the stuff and um, charged off into Central Asia and arrived on the frontiers of Kyrgyzia uh, with a suitcase and obviously some photographs of his family. And he met some members of the Ajmendi Tarikat, you know, all black beards. And, and, and they said, uh, what's in your suitcase? So he opened it up. Out came the family photograph. Photographs aren't allowed here. So tore them up. Next day, he charged a Bolshevik machine gun post and got killed. And that, I think, is about it. It's, it's, it's an element of fantasy. I think you know, people who know the subject better than me would say, look, it's because they, they run into this awful business with the Europeans that you're not really wanted. You know, that some little jackanapes like Sarkozy. By the way, his name is properly pronounced Sarkozy, and you know what it is? It's a, it's a, it's a Turkish word meaning gypsy. <laughs> Shark is east and Uz means from. <laughs> and some little jackanapes uh, uh, prating on about this and that. And uh, you know, they're a bit sick of it, and uh, so it's hardly surprising that if the French pick up the Armenian massacres, make a about that, the Turks will say, well, what about the Algerians you massacred? And uh, so on and so forth. So, I know, they feel a bit humiliated about this kind of thing. It's particularly the visas. It's um, preposterous. Thank you very much for your lecture, Professor Stone. Could you just talk a little about contemporary Turkey and culture? Because uh, culture was a little bit left out of, of your lecture. You spoke about politics and administration and... and, and government and so on. Could you talk a little bit about culture? Because it seems to be Europeanism seems to involve a cultural element. And some of the questions you've been asked 
does Turkey belong in the Middle East or does it belong in Europe, really have a cultural element. What would you say the main forces changing Turkish culture are? And could you say also whether the United States plays a role? You know, it seems to me that United States American culture is very influential in, in, in Turkey and, and indeed is part of the European influence. Of, when, when Turks often say we want to be Europeans, they mean we want to speak English we want to have American democracy, we want to have those kind of... They're really talking much about the United States as they are about Europe. And you know, often when, what things they don't like about Europe uh, are political things about Europe. Could, could you thought, therefore talk about what you think cultural influences are? Remembering, of course, there are very strong Middle Eastern and Muslim cultural influences. Oh, um, I remember I got an invitation once. It, it was about some time ago. I haven't made too many gaffes in Turkey, but this was one of them. And I was, uh, the European ambassadresses have a sort of excruciating lunch every month and get a talker. And I knew the consort of the Swedish ambassadress, and he twisted my arm and said, I go and talk about this sort of thing. And, uh, I mean, they were unutterable. I remember the Dutch ambassadress was a gigantic lesbian dressed in a carpet. <laughs> and, and uh, oh dear, oh, it was terrible. <laughs> I was I was supposed to address this sort of thing, and they said um, uh, they said, uh, would you um, what do you think about uh, uh, the influence of um, what about the influence of the Europeans on Turkey and the human rights? And uh, oh, awful. <laughs> so I said, well, they all want to go to America. Um, and I'm afraid the, you know, the Americanization of Turkey is, is, is a, it's a, it's a terrible universal phenomenon, which, um, you know, which, uh, I just don't like. Uh, it's, uh, it's that awful kind of, people have been complaining about it since, um, you know, the American GIs in England. <laughs> and uh, we all know what we mean by it. And it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely taking over Turkey. Um, it, I mean, I'd much rather they, they were back in the old days where the second language was French. You know, their, their modern literature was built up by people who, had, who, who were steeped in French literature. And some of them are very good indeed. Orhan Pamuk is the most obvious case, but there are many others. And, you know, if I ask my classes, my classes now, how many of you speak French? Two hands. It's a terribly sad thing. Um, German, forget it. It's uh, um, they they just they just think that the Germans will regard them as as uh, Gasarbeiter and not take them particularly seriously. And the Germans do not know how to handle situations like that. Um, <clears throat> most of them. So it, it's uh, America's the is the boss hand. Now, it, it, uh, Turkish friends will get very worried about this, and they're utterly right to do so, because they say, take, for instance, the vocabulary. Um, uh, the young generation just, uh, just simply doesn't know um, the old words. And the, uh, there's the same problem you find, again, that, that reading is, becomes a minority activity. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, really don't want to sound like a um, you know, kind of Jeremiah, um, you know, old man um, blasting away, because I'm quite prepared to accept that uh, certain cultural changes would be more or less unavoidable and possibly, in a sense, good. 
but uh, it is it is it is quite worrying that the. But you know, sorry, I'm slightly going on off the top of my head. Uh, I mean, in a way, it's built into the Republic. You see, if you take 1922, the Sultan, uh, the Sultan was he was trying to survive as a kind of Aga Khan figure, supported by the British, uh, with a sort of ceremonial role as far as the Muslims of the British Empire were concerned, and they and he thought, and he and Boris Johnson's grandfather, great grandfather who was his Minister of the the Interior for a bit, um, also thought that they would be able to keep on to the old Muslim ways. And that included tolerance for Greeks and Christians in Istanbul. That was not any kind of problem. It was for the nationalists. So they get defeated. um, And poor old Vahidetin, the Sultan, dodders out into a British ambulance, smuggled onto a British warship, together with his five wives and such bits and pieces as they could collect in a hurry, and arrived in Malta, was immediately presented with a bill for the transport of the five wives. Um, that was Lloyd George did that, and uh, settled down, died in 1926. Now, if you're used to that kind of thing and you think uh, this whole crepuscular, epidemic-ridden Ottoman past... It's it's produced this. We'll start from year zero. So they, they scrapped a lot of the Ottoman, uh, the, the old Ottoman culture. And things like, things like how, to, how to do a, um, an Iznik tile. They kept the, they kept the um, formula for making the blue tiles. They lost the one for making the red tiles. Because they, no, and nobody can do them now. They're, they're working very hard to do it, but it cannot be done. And that's the kind of thing that's repudiated. Ataturk himself was, I mean, he's obviously an atheist. And he was a progressive in the, sense, in the sort of 1900s sense. He read all sorts of, you know, uh, we would now regard them as rather secondary, rather too... Uh, <laughs> I was about to say rather second-rate literature, a bit like Richard Dawkins. <laughs> 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 he read that kind of thing, and then his cups would say, uh, Islam just, you know, it sat on us like a sort of dead weight all these years. Why listen to what some 7th century Bedouin had to say about anything? Uh, and would get very testy about it. And um, there's been a reaction against it. They went too far in this. And there's been a reaction against it with um, the consequences that we're now living. But, you know, an awful lot of the old culture was really destroyed by. I'm afraid by the Ataturks, or even, even in a funny hidden way, by, by Abdul Hamid before in the 1890s. I bet Abdul Hamid knocked down more mosques than ever Ataturk did. Sorry, I'm utterly inconclusive sentences. <laughs> there are two things that you said that uh, I would like to ask you about. First is the question of visas. My experience with visas is very different. When any of my people come over, we, we work with a Turkish factory for the last 30 years. All we need to do is write a letter to whom it may concern and say this person is a, a, a responsible person who we, I deem it correct to give a visa and it's automatic. Now, I don't know, your experience obviously is different. The other question I wanted to ask you as far as Erdogan, Mr. Erdogan is concerned, is what are the ladies going to do? Most of the people I work with in Turkey, the executives, are ladies. And they don't fancy the idea of having to cover their heads. What is going to happen? 
Uh, with the visa thing, possibly, possibly students have a, have a particular problem because, they, uh, you know, because I suppose of the associations with, uh, who was that nutty, a nutty Nigerian who blew, up, blew himself up. And, and, you know, the way computers, as understood in this country, have to deal with things is that everybody has to go through the same process, as if somebody with a scholarship from the LSE or Birkbeck is likely to be equated, equated with, you know, fake students. It's, and uh, anyway, it is, it, it is humiliating, and very nasty things happen. I'm sure in... in Actually, quite a lot of my friends have not had this problem, but they, it costs them quite a bit of money to do it. The women with... Look, I, I'd have to say, quite frankly, and I don't like the implications of what I'm saying and I don't like saying it, but the, I, I hardly know an educated woman in Turkey now who is not really quite worried. They do get worried, a lot of them. And, uh, you know, it's not terribly healthy, um, but still it is a fact. And it is, of course, the biggest problem with Islam is, is that it, it puts women into their box. Uh, and and you know, sensible people on the Islamic, on the Muslim side, of course, know this. They've been saying it for years. But still, against that vast weight of popular pressure, there is, you know, cover yourself up. It's, it's there. Popular conservatism. Um, if we could rewind a little, could you say something? Sorry, over here. Ah. Could you say something about the perhaps the prehistoric origins of the Turks, or who the Turks really were, and whether or not any of, of that identity is carried through into their modern identity in some way? Uh, you know, I'm. I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm I'd be uh, I'd be forthhand on this. The, because all I've done is read the obvious books and I know about their origins in the Altai. The, the Turkic language seems to have from, spread from the front. The Uyghurs, for instance, can, can be understood in, uh, in, in modern Turkey, I think, without too much difficulty. <coughs> but obviously it's a limited, num- limited number of words. The grammar seems not to have changed very much. Uh, the relationship with Hungarian and so on. Originally, they're obviously Asiatic. But um, uh, and you know, some Turkish nationalists would would say that they are they are the um, they are the pure Turks, you know, the ones who say for Biri Kiyuch. And there's a, there's a Kyrgyz village near Lake Van, which I've been to. Uh, so, so a group of Kyrgyz who fled from the Bolshevik Revolution into China. And then fled from the Chinese Revolution in, over the Pamirs into Afghanistan. And then the Soviets arrived in Afghanistan. So they went over another lot of Pamirs and landed up in, in, with their back-trained camels in Pakistan. And the, there's, uh, the, the, the um, pre- then president of Turkey landed in Pakistan and, and invited them to Turkey uh, and put them in Thrace, which was far too hot for them. So they've been deposited in van, and they apply themselves to making babies. <laughs> and uh, so that's uh, and they're, they're, the Turkish nationalists are always quite pleased to see this kind of connection. But the fact is, they they, they did a DNA on the modern population of Anatolia, and uh, yeah, no prizes for guessing. They're all Greeks. 
And the, the, the Turkish nationalists, or the stupider ones, weren't best pleased when they discovered this, but it's, it's perfectly obvious. I actually think with the, the, the origins of the Kurds are a bit more speculation about that. Were they the, the Medes, as in Persians, Medes and Persians? Is that the origin of Kurds? But an awful lot of it's speculation, and uh, they, you know, people don't seem to agree on what, even on which word means what. I mean, is Kyrgyz, for instance, the Kurt, Turkish word for forty is Kirk? Is it? Does it mean forty tribes? And some people will say yes, it means that. And other people will say no, it means your granny with a glass eye or something like this. <laughs> So I'm afraid, I'm afraid a lot of this is, 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 um, is romantic speculation. It was very odd, you know, I, I mentioned the Celts who arrived in Anatolia in the, after Alexander. One of my first curious moments there was I was, sitting in the, I was sitting in the sauna in the sports club, sitting opposite somebody who was the picture of my first cousin in Edinburgh. <laughs> but, you know, probably just accident. Spoke about the Americanization of the culture in Turkey now, but was there ever a period when there was an exportation of Turkish culture? And if so, what parts of it were particularly um, regarded by the West and what parts were neglected? Well, you know, there is a there is a, 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 an Ottoman culture, which um, parts of which would simply not be inex- not be accessible. How can you how could you deal with Ottoman poetry? Then there's <clears throat> you see, printing is printing comes very late to it. The the ulema didn't like printing and and banned it in 1739. Was Hungarian came and tried it. And the, the vast bulk of books which come up until the young Turks come along are lies of saints, things of this sort, written in a script which very few people can read. So it's not going to be a literary culture. The musical culture is very, very strong of its own kind. And so also are things you know, which simply not my world at all, but the, the, the whole world of fabric, of design, of calligraphy, you, you find that that was that was very far advanced, and people came from all parts of the world which knew about these things to Istanbul. Um, now, I'm not in any way. I mean, this is now fifth hand, but I'd, uh, uh, people who know about it say that the you know the bottom dropped out of it in the later 19th century. That they they really are just waiting to start copying the West, and they do it. And they've been doing it, after all, you know, more or less for what 150 years now. So it's it's been a it's been a hybrid culture, but it's still a it's it's you know it's still a pretty rich one. It's it's got its own. It's a bit like Spain, see, that sort of thing. There's not much to read in Spanish except for your airline ticket, but there's an awful lot of strength otherwise. <laughs> Sorry, what have I said? <laughs> Would you all like to join me in thanking Norman for a very rich and fascinating talk? Thank you. Thank you for listening.
You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.